Once again, we are talking about distracted driving, and this is another court case that is causing a bit of confusion, at least raising some more questions about where your phone can be, where it, uh, if it can be touching your leg or not. Joining us to talk more about this case and what it shows us, what the laws are like, is Kyla Lee, a lawyer at Acumen Law. Kyla, thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me. I think we were talking about this last time because there was a, the ICBC ad that wasn't correct, that t- had to be pulled down. Even ICBC not getting the facts straight when it comes to what the laws say is and is not allowed when it comes to distracted driving. Can you kind of give us a bit of background? What was the at the heart of this particular case? So this case involved an individual who uh, was observed by an officer. Now, there was a conflict in the evidence. The officer had said he saw um, Mr. Mirza pick up his phone and move it uh, to the passenger seat. Um, The accused testified and said that the phone was simply um, sitting on the seat next to him, leaning on his body. Uh, So there was a conflict in the evidence, but uh, ultimately the court determined it didn't really matter because if your phone is leaning against your body, uh, that is still considered holding your phone and using your phone in the uh, meaning of the Motor Vehicle Act. Which seems a bit strange because when reading through the court, the the decision itself, it even states how he has both of his hands were on the wheel and the phone wasn't the screen wasn't lit up. It wasn't as though the phone was in use. Was that important at all in, in how this case unfolded? Uh, It was certainly important to the accused. Um, His uh, position was that there was a distinction between cases where somebody had their phone resting on their lap um, or or propped up against a part of their body um, where the screen was lit up and in use and the inference was that they were going to be looking at the screen of the phone. And his position was because it was only touching him, leaning against him, but not in a position where he could see the screen, that that didn't count as holding the phone. And the court rejected that argument and uh, relied on the BC Court of Appeals decision involving a phone which had been disabled through an app which couldn't be used, um, but was still considered to be in use when uh, that person was holding it to say it doesn't matter whether you are able to look at the screen of the phone, as long as you're holding it in a position in which it could be used, um, then that constitutes use uh, of the phone. Hmm. And so he he testified saying that he would usually leave the phone between the passenger seat and the driver's seat and that he had no intention of using the phone when it was in that position. You couldn't use it. He said the phone was locked, that his hands were on the wheel. But but was it when he admitted that the phone was and the quote was leaning on my body? That's when it, it, it was in contravention of the law. Yes. That that was essentially the critical point for it being in contravention of the law. Um, Essentially, uh, if you are using your body to hold the phone, and that includes propping up the phone against a part of your body, that is enough. Uh, without more for you to be convicted of distracted driving. Because I guess to a lot of, whenever you see people and you can tell that they're looking down at their phone, it's uh, and when you're, you're driving uh, and you see somebody looking, oftentimes, so the phone can be sitting on someone's thigh. And and is it because of that? Would that be something that officers would be looking for in this case, that, that it looked as though the phone was on his leg, therefore he was using the phone while he was driving? 
Yes, officers are going to look for that, but they're going to look for a phone that's being touched by you in any way. Um, If it's not securely mounted to your person, if your body is making contact with it, you can expect that you are going to be pulled over and issued a distracted driving ticket. They don't give a lot of leeway for, um, you know, innocent holding or touching of the phone. Do you know, though, was the phone sitting completely on his leg or was it on the, the seat and it just happened to be touching his leg? Well, this was part of the conflict in the evidence because the officer had said that it was completely on his leg um, and then he moved it over, whereas um, the the accused had said that the phone was sort of in a uh, sort of pocket in the vehicle and also touching his leg at the same time, sort of propped up from that vehicle pocket. So there was a bit of a conflict in the evidence, but in the end that it didn't really matter. The judicial justice in traffic court didn't believe him about the location of the phone anyway and accepted the officer's evidence. But even if he had accepted the evidence of the accused, he still would have been convicted. So in your mind, does this help? clear up confusion over distracted driving laws or does it create more? Uh, I think this clears up more confusion um, in the sense that now we have yet another explanation from the court about the nuances of what may constitute holding a phone and what is permissible. It's unfortunate, though, that we need to continue to see court decisions interpreting, you know, people's various conclusions about what they can and can't do as far as having the phone make contact with their body instead of having a clear law that makes it very clear what you can and can't do with the phone. This this costs taxpayers money, uh, this takes court time, and it doesn't help anybody um, in the meantime while these cases are being sorted out. So if they clarified that, or, or do you think that there's still a need to clarify the law or maybe clarify the wording so that it is included and so it's, it's I don't know if it's possible to have a law be crystal clear, but make it crystal clear what's allowed and what's not? Oh, absolutely. If, you know, and it, it's obviously not possible to get a perfectly crystal clear law, but the one that we have is very vague. It simply prohibits using a phone, and then it defines use in a couple different places, both in the Motor Vehicle Act as well as in some regulations, so it makes it very inaccessible. And even those definitions aren't very clear. For example, use, the, the part of use that was at issue in this case was, um, was uh, use includes holding a phone in a position in which it may be used. And so that was confusing because, as the accused argued, he couldn't have used his phone based on how he was holding it. But that didn't really matter because, you know, the hands-free features of the phone could have been used. Right. Okay. Uh, I mean, it it seems like it is, there is so much left up for interpretation. And what if you were somebody, you have, say, uh, one of those kind of waterproof pouches with a lanyard around it that you keep your phone in maybe when you're at the beach or you're near water. If you were driving and wearing that, would that be against the, the laws, the way the law is written right now? Probably not, um, <laughs> because the law does permit you to have your phone touching you if it is securely affixed to your person. So if you think about, you know, back in the day when we all used to wear those cell phone holsters in our on our belt loops, um, or if you had your phone, you know, strapped to an armband like runners use, or perhaps one of those waterproof pouches worn around the neck, um, that might be something that uh, would be acceptable under the law. But of course, you don't have a case clarifying this. If a police officer takes a different view, you end up getting the ticket, you have to go to court, you have to fight your case, and you may not be successful. That's an interesting one. So, And the armband, which you often see people wearing those. So if you were driving with that and an officer saw that and maybe thought, well, that's 
touching you that's not secured to the vehicle. Uh, could that be an issue if you were driving around with it secured on a holder on your arm? No, because it's securely affixed to your person. And in that circumstance, there's no doubt that the the phone is secure as against your body. Um, It's not like loose leaning on your body or resting on a part of your body or being held by a part of your body, but it's strapped to you. And that's permitted under the legislation. Which makes sense, I guess. But you could also use the phone in every way you could in that scenario as you could if it was leaning against your leg too, couldn't you? The real sense of the distraction of the phone certainly is not taken away by that. It's also not taken away by having the phone mounted, right? You're still distracted. You're still able to glance at the screen and see your text messages and, you know, see what song is playing. Um, So it doesn't really eliminate the distraction portion of the distracted driving, although it does eliminate a risk that the phone could go flying in the car and interfere with your ability to um, operate the equipment of the vehicle. Right. Okay. So getting back to this case, so reading the last line, it says the appeal is dismissed. So uh, this uh, this guy who was pulled over, who was ticketed because the phone was touching his leg, that's the end of the line for him as far as fighting this case? Uh, well, in theory, he could appeal to the BC Court of Appeal, um, but uh, the likelihood of success there, given two successive judgments that have found that he's guilty, relying on Court of Appeal judgments, uh, is pretty slim. And, uh, you know, I think he'd struggle to persuade the court to overturn his conviction. <laughs> have, how, do you keep count of how many of these cases we've seen or how many that you've been involved with? Uh, I mean, I've seen at least 15 distracted driving cases go to various levels of appeal in uh, British Columbia. So it's a lot, considering that it's only one provision of the BC Motor Vehicle Act. Yeah, it does seem it does seem like that is a lot. And those are only the ones that, that go to court, that people will take the time and energy and money to fight. Yes. And of course, if you uh, go to traffic court, um, we have traffic court sitting in most courthouses in the lower mainland every single day of the week. Um, And if you look at the court list, a lot of the tickets that are on the court list are distracted driving tickets. And the bulk of those, I'm guessing, are to do with phones, not others that some other kind of distraction. No, it's very rare to see um, sort of distracted driving tickets issued for the other types of things that are prohibited, like TVs or GPS units or portable music players that aren't phones. Um, We mostly see it as it relates to phones. And I think that's because most of us use our phone for all of those other functions, but we don't have those extra distracting devices in our cars. All right. Well, this is another interesting case. Kyla, as always, thanks so much for joining and for bringing us uh, these details. Well, thanks for having me. Well, yesterday on the show, we kind of touched on this theme, talking about a report looking at college students, post-secondary students, and eating habits, and how if you have bad eating habits at that point in your life, you could have more problems related to that later on. Well, today there is a new report. It comes to us from the BC Centre for Disease Control, and this takes a look at the high cost of healthy eating in BC in general. Jeff McKee is the medical director of the BC CDC Population and Public Health. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I know this is the first time that this particular report has been done in full since the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about what specifically you were looking at or what was studied as far as nutritious food, nutritious diets, and whether or not they're affordable for BC families? Absolutely. So as part of our provincial monitoring program for food security, we run this food costing study about every two years. But as you mentioned, we had a bit of a delay due to the pandemic. 
So we assess the cost of approximately 60 food items considered by Health Canada to make up a healthy diet as part of its national nutritional food basket uh, at various full-service grocery stores across BC. Um, and then we use this to then try to estimate what the monthly cost would be to eat a healthy diet uh, for various different types of households throughout the province. Um, and we've used this previously to help us understand what are some of those determinants that can help people actually eat or afford a healthy diet to be food secure. Um, we've done this previously, although we used a new nutritional food basket this year, or uh, last year, I should say. Um, and, and what it really demonstrates is that it is, uh, the costs are high to eat uh, healthy diets across the province. Um, about $1,263 a month was the average cost of a nutritious diet for a family of four. Um, and this is particularly out of reach for those who already experience financial challenges. We were able to look at uh, how this cost um, would be managed by people in different circumstances, such as those on social assistance. And it really demonstrates that at the root of it, what actually leads to people um, uh, finding it challenging to afford healthy diets is really those uh, determinants of health, things like income. And when you looked at that and that number, it seems big, $1,263 a month. That's a lot of money that's going to food to make sure that people are eating healthy. Are you looking at, though, or can you kind of define or break down what kinds of foods you're talking about and, and, and what kind of is, is feeding into those costs? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, National Nutritional Food Basket that Health Canada creates is based on um, what uh, a healthy diet might look like when following the Canada Food Guide. So it includes uh, various uh, vegetables, uh, whole grains, low sodium and low uh, free sugar uh, type foods. Um, and Health Canada has selected a number of foods that are more some of the most more commonly eaten foods in Canada to help create this nutritious food basket. Now, this isn't necessarily used as a guide for what to eat as a nutritious uh, diet, but provides us a measure where we can standardize and we can get a standard sense uh, of, of how much it costs in the province um, or in other jurisdictions in Canada. And, and then we can also track that over time. Um, I, I will say it's difficult to track it compared to our previous reports because we had some changes with the updated food guide, but we're looking forward to tracking that into the future. And this is looking at these numbers then, these are still looking at 2022 as far as the, the most recent or the most up-to-date information where I think we've even seen with food inflation, things might be even more expensive if we were, say, to do this all over again. Absolutely. I think we, uh, when we, we, we looked at it, we were seeing fairly high costs. But as you mentioned, uh, with inflation the way it is, um, uh, prices have likely continued to rise and are likely to be higher this year. And was it pretty much the same or did it vary across the, the province or in different regions in the province? I know you looked at, at various different stores and different places where food was being purchased, but did you see much of a change in those costs if we looked at different regions? You know, there were some variation in some of the regions. I will say when we set out with the methods that we used, it, we weren't looking to specifically identify differences in different parts of the province. Um, as this is really a snapshot in time at these stores in any particular place. Um, what I will say, though, is that even though we did see, find costs were high throughout the province, and, you know, for many places which were more difficult to assess, such as some of those more rural and remote communities in the province, um, they're likely may experience even greater costs when you factor in things like transportation or access to, to different foods um, if they don't have access to full-service grocery stores, etc., 
I see in the report too. So it says about 4% of people in this province are experiencing severe food insecurity. Uh, Not a huge percentage, but that's a very big deal. And that, can you talk, what does, what are we, what do we mean if we say severe food insecurity? Yeah, so those measures are coming from some of our measurements we take from the Canadian Community Health Survey, and they look at uh, different levels of food insecurity. More severe uh, food insecurity is when people are going hungry and and aren't able to actually access or afford food on a regular enough basis to to eat a healthy, nutritious uh, diet. Um, So that's where we're getting more of those severe numbers. But we also have different levels of food insecurity. Uh, Some people might worry quite a bit about food, may occasionally experience challenges getting healthy, uh, nutritious and acceptable diets. Um, And so we we try to track those measures from the Canadian Community Health Survey over time. Um, And it's something we're continuing to track and look forward to the next round of the survey to see where we're at now. And when you find that people are struggling to put food on the table, is it also, and I don't know if this study looked at this, but is there also a tendency for people then to making to make those dollars stretch if you're going to be purchasing uh, more processed foods, those cheaper options, which a lot of the times aren't healthy? Absolutely. I mean, I think when, when you have these costs of the essentials and you only have so much money to uh, divide among those essential things like a healthy diet, like affordable housing, et cetera. Um, yet that money has to be found somewhere. And so that's why at the end of the day, um, we're really concerned and where we really drive home the point in the report is that um, th- these inequities are caused by some of those determinants of health, those, those challenge- financial challenges that are experienced. And, and that's where we really need to, um, to, to, to find solutions in order to, to, to make sure everybody has access to healthy and nutritious food. Because what what else did you find as far as, besides being hungry, which obviously is a big thing, the health concerns and what happens to families, to children, uh, to people who, who aren't getting healthy food and uh, who are either missing meals or having meals that really aren't all that nutritious? Yeah, well, I mean, we know that the, the impact of, uh, of, of, of uh, diet on different um, health conditions, such as how it might relate to diabetes, heart disease, etc. Um, but food secure insecurity also play, has uh, direct health implications. Um, we, we see both physical impacts um, of food insecurity, and we also see mental health impacts of the stress and the challenges that people face in um, uh, in, in, in managing these, these financial challenges. Um, and so the, the literature is quite robust, and we even see increases in healthcare costs, for example, among people who have ident- reported food insecurity. Um, so all, all in all, um, there's a lot of different health impacts that can be seen here, um, which really, I think, stresses the importance of, of, of finding a solution to this. What do you think a solution would be in that it doesn't look like the price of food is going to be dropping anytime soon? Uh, it's not feasible for everybody to be growing their own vegetables and having their own gardens and such. What do you think is a possible solution? Well, I think, again, to come back to kind of what we've been identifying as the root cause is that we need to address some of these inequities and we need to find so, uh, we need to find options uh, that can support people uh, to, to, to have incomes that allow them to meet those essentials. And, and, and I mean, the purpose of this report is really trying to highlight the issue. Um, and I think there's many different policy options that are being explored and can continue to be explored. Um, and we've seen government um, st- stress uh, kind of various different policies and programs to help address um, 
uh, cost of living, etc. And so I think this just provides extra emphasis on 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 why we need to consider these kind of system level um, supports in order to uh, support people's health and well-being. All right, Jeff McKee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Well, Vancouver-based pub chain, the Donnelly Group, has announced it has filed for creditor protection, that in part to deal with a lot of pandemic-related debt. I mean, we all know what happened during the pandemic. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was tough, and uh, particularly for our industry, it was very tough. And, um, you know, we had a lot, a lot of uh, really, really good um, employees, staff, management that uh, worked through it. And, um, and, you know, we were, we were opening and closing and, you know, we were, there's, there was, became a, a major la- labor shortage, particularly in uh, downtown Vancouver and Toronto, which is the two cities that we operate in. That was Jeff Donnelly speaking with Global News about the debt and about the situation they are in. Joining us now is Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Ian, great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jill, for having me. Uh, any surprise that the Donnelly Group, which is quite a well-known group with the various restaurants, I think 11 pubs and restaurants in Vancouver, five more in Toronto, that they have now filed for creditor protection? It's a bit surprising because you would think that given their uh, their size and, uh, and ability to get through these things, that they'd have a little more boring power, purchasing power. And I, I was quite surprised. I mean, we, we'd been hearing things, but uh, I was quite surprised to, to see they've you know, filed for a reorganization, which is, which is you know, a form of bankruptcy. Uh, I, I looked at the, um, the, the submission they made and um, as to the reasons they felt that in their petition that uh, that this happened um and they list things like the increase in minimum wage the additional five days of sick uh day sick days that were was uh, introduced into british columbia so now it's 10. um labor shortages jeff just mentioned that on your show um the um the health tax in bc which has got a a half a million dollar uh, threshold so at half a million dollars you, you pay the employer's health tax um, that's a lot for a lot of small businesses. And in fact, the Chamber of Commerce and other business organizations have called to increase that to a uh, million and a half dollars. Uh, on the sick pay, which is interesting, is we're seeing that, you know, that, you know not a, it's not widespread, but it's enough to, to feel the impact that some people will work for a business, um, their, t- their sick days or 10 sick days, and then leave that business and go on to another business and then, you know, do that again. Because they can, and because you know it's very difficult for employers to sort of get that you know give me a doctor's note in the system that we have right now, so these costs are adding up to us. Um, the uh, and they go on to talk about you know increasing interest rates. Obviously, if you're carrying a lot of debt, that's a problem. Also, insurance rates. So the cumulative effect of this is is disastrous. And I uh, I'm just writing a letter to the premier requesting a meeting. I did have. Um, I don't think you'll mind me mentioning this in uh, informal chat with them last night um, about the state of the industry, which, as I said to the premier, we're in trouble. Um, we can't control these things. We can't control when government, you know, a lot of these things um, are government initiated costs. And um, some of them are costs that aren't direct financial costs, like, for example, uh, waiting for months on license approval or patio approvals or, 
um, you know, foreign worker approvals. Uh, we just simply have to get those. We have to do better at that. He agreed, and it, I think he's quite concerned. So we've requested a meeting with the uh, key cabinet ministers uh, in British Columbia to brief them. As I said to the premier, we've you know, Obama was sold the old help is on the way. And I think we need to say that to businesses that help us on the way, like for bailouts. But I think we certainly have to be cognizant of the fact that there's things that we can do together, like we did during the pandemic, that are innovative, that doesn't cost taxpayer too much money, but that gives us the chance to stabilize the patient here. It's very much like a triage situation in the hospital right now. I've never seen anything like it, Jill. And you know me, we've talked enough. I'm Mr. Optimistic. Yes. I know we'll get out of this. But it, I, I don't talk to anybody right now. It goes, hey, dude, things are great. Things are not great. Restaurants Canada um, did a survey that that said that, you know, um, more than 50% of restaurants are losing money. Uh, bankruptcies are up 116%. And uh, there's a general lack of, you know, and now we're seeing a lot of independent restaurants getting to the point of saying, what's the point of this? I'm not making the money. It's getting really tiring. And so I think our our next move here needs to say, you know what, help is coming, hope is coming. We've talked to the city of Vancouver. Uh, you know, Sarah Kirby Young has been amazing. We've talked with the mayor about how we can fast track, streamline, and and put some zip into the system and get some things exciting again. So when it all comes down to it, Jill, this is all um, which we didn't see it to be this bad. The result of the pandemic. Do you think we'll see other restaurants doing the same thing as far as either filing for creditor protection or see more closures? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was just talking to someone that said, you hear about this per- the restaurant on Main Street? You hear about the little bakery that just closed? And so it's all over the place. We don't necessarily hear about it. The Donnelly Group's pretty profile, but yeah, for sure. I think, uh, like I said, you know, bankruptcies are up, according to Restaurants Canada, 116%. So if we have... I don't know. Here's some broad numbers. 15,000 restaurants and we maybe 10%, 5% close each year. I think we're probably approaching double that now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to, to a, a wonderful woman who owns a restaurant in North Vancouver. She said, I'm being asked to renew my lease for five years. I don't want to do that. I'm not making any money. I'm working <laughs> six days a week and it's cash flow. but what, what's the point of this? So, um, very difficult. It's really difficult. And it's really about margins. I mean, we're not making it, you know, we can't put our prices up to the point that we can make adequate margins. People are going to pay so much for hamburger. Um, on the more formal side of dining where people aren't price sensitive, it's a little different. But in your day-to-day sort of family restaurants and uh, and casual restaurants, price is important, uh, With you know, especially with the economy the way it is you've got to be really careful about what you present on your menu in terms of pricing to make sure you don't scare people away. All right. Well, we will continue uh, to follow this. Ian, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jill. I really appreciate talking to you all the time as well. Once again, uh, there is attention being paid to a development proposal, and this is for a plot of land where there is nothing there currently, and it has been a contentious piece of property. Well, the proposal has been contentious in the past, and again, Council is going to be considering a development proposal for 105 Kiefer Street. And joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Jordan Ng, the president of the Vancouver Chinatown Business Improvement Association. Jordan, thanks so much for being here. 
Thanks for having me on the uh, on the line, uh, Joe. Uh, we were talking to a group yesterday, and I know they're planning uh, to have a news conference later this afternoon, very much opposed to the proposal the way it is. Uh, they're calling for instead a building with 100% social housing, saying that the proposal that's going to council isn't the right fit for the neighbourhood. I know your take on this is quite different. What are your thoughts on what is coming back as far as a proposal for 105 Kiefer? Well, you know, uh, we put out a press release uh, yesterday, uh, uh, Joe, with uh, seven legacy organizations, including the Chinese Benevolent Association, the Chinese Freemason, the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Garden, the Chinese Cultural Center, uh, the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. And we're all in support of the, the project. Uh, you know, it's uh, been a long time coming. At least some of these organizations did not uh, uh, support uh, in the previous uh, uh, five years ago. But, you know, we're all, I, 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 I'm happy to say that, uh, you know, we're, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with legacy organizations that uh, are in support of uh, creating vibrancy and uh, new housing that uh, brings people into the neighbourhood. And what do you like specifically about the project, the way it's being proposed right now? Well, I think, uh, it, it, you know, it's, uh, it's exactly the same project that came out in 2017 that was rejected. Uh, but, uh, you know, what it does do, it, you know, this, this piece of land has been a parking lot since the... 1970s and uh, uh, Chinatown has had a tough four years with COVID, the anti-Asian attacks on our institutions, the graffiti, uh, the mental health and social disorder that we've we've suffered. And uh, the project brings life to the neighborhood. It brings people, it brings eyes to the street. It supports the businesses. I know there's been a lot of talk about the fact that this is the same development proposal that was before council before and it was rejected. And if you go back to another uh, iteration of this, there was social housing involved. There was housing for seniors that was involved. Am I correct in saying the the way it is now, it doesn't have that social housing component or that more affordable housing component, does it? It it doesn't. Um, You know, originally came in at 12 stories, which was rezoning to ask for additional height. And that's when uh, you know, the social housing was offered as a community uh, contribution. But the, the, uh, what's going to the, de- it's the de- development permit uh, board is actually within the existing zoning. So uh, there are existing buildings in Chinatown that are nine stories high. So, Right. Are there any concerns with the, the look or the aesthetics of the building and whether or not it's going to uh, kind of complement other buildings or, or the more traditional styles of the architecture in Chinatown? Yeah, you know, it is, there's always a, uh, uh, you know, who defines what is Chinatown character in terms of design. I think the current design fits that that, that model. Um, if you were here in the 70s, uh, it, it was a different look. You know, in the 80s, uh, you, could, you could see the red brick. So it, it depends on the, on, on the framing of, of timing and, and your perspective. But uh, I, I think um, uh, it, it would fit well into the neighbourhood. And you mentioned, and this was in the release as well, that was put out, like you said, with the seven legacy organizations that are all on board and are in favor of this, that a lot has changed since we saw that division back in 2014 when uh, there was the, the, the proposal came forward and uh, there certainly wasn't uh, unanimous uh, support for it. What specifically do you think, though, has changed that, that this could get more support this time? Well, I, I think it's important to note that, you know, each of these organizations, uh, their, their support was based on the, the approval of the board uh, members of, of, of each organization. And, and it took a long, t- it took a few weeks to, to see if, if there was, I mean, uh, uh, support for it. And um, 
I, I think that the change in the sentiment is that we, you know, we need to see um, more people in, in Chinatown. We, we need to see more activity because we don't have a, a huge population base within um, Chinatown to support the businesses, to have people on the street uh, uh, creating a vibrant neighbourhood. And would you like to see more developments like this then, as far as, like you said, bringing people there, making it so people are living and, and maybe not working, but are living and shopping and, and, and there is more vibrancy to the community? Well, I, I think this is one of the larger uh, sites left. Uh, but, th- you know, there's opportunity for little infill uh, projects in Chinatown. And I think, um, you know, to Chinatown was... Uh, back in the day, was uh, uh, because it was a neighborhood of ex- uh, exclusion, the people were in the neighborhood were inclusive, and, and it was a city within a city. So, um, you know, there was a lot, a lot of vibrancy just within the neighborhood. So I think, you know, that's what people miss uh, of, of Chinatowns, and even the Chinatown of the 80s when people came down to visit with their families. Uh, you know, that, that's what we're, what we're hoping for. Uh, do you have any concerns or, or what do you say to the concerns, though, that, yes, this is a project that will bring housing and it will bring people to the neighbourhood, but without any kind of social housing component or even a below market component, it's not going to be affordable to a lot of the people maybe that would like to live in Chinatown or continue living in Chinatown. What do you say to those concerns that it kind of misses that part of the need? Well, I, I think the fact that this is a private property, you know, uh, you can't rely on, on the developer to, to provide the social housing or the seniors' housing. The, the, the legacy groups are already in discussion with uh, city and city staff uh, to, to provide uh, appropriate, culturally appropriate senior housing as they, uh, as they work on the Northeast Falls Creek uh, plan, which is right next door to Chinatown, where, where the viaducts are. So I, I think that piece is already happening, and... You know, if, if they, the, the people that were, are opposing it were involved in the conversations, they would, they would see that already. That uh, there is a need for it, but maybe not this particular development, but maybe uh, in, other, in other areas or other, like you said, other kind of agencies, whether it's the city or, or BC Housing, other groups taking part in that? Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, half of the, the, the organization in support here are operators of senior social, uh, seniors' low-income housing in, in the community already. So, we, you know, that doesn't get lost to us at all. I think we, we think it's very important to have uh, seniors, uh, Chinese seniors housing in the neighbourhood, and, uh, um, and, and we want to bring them back into the neighbourhood as well. So, uh, so they're in a, you know, really their home, so to speak, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and again, Jordan, just kind of looking back to the discussions that were had about this in, in 2014, I think one of those also had to do with looking at the surrounding neighborhood and seeing so much change in the condo developments and the different types of shops and cafes that were coming into the neighborhood. And I even saw somebody mention in this one that this kind of looks like someone's taken a gas town condo tower and kind of plunked it on the edge of Chinatown. Is there any concern about that kind of other neighborhoods kind of creeping in no you know i think um you know there's been a lot of misleading social uh media out there you know there was a a, a, a photograph of uh this huge monstrosity up, up against the, the sen yat-sen garden and, and the sen yat-sen garden actually had to ask them to remove it because uh it, it didn't represent actually the, the, what the reality is and, and i think there's been a bit of fear-mongering amongst the activists that this is some sort of uh boogeyman that's going to transform the neighborhood uh, i don't i don't see that happening i think uh uh, you know, if, if, if it did, um, you know, there would be, 
these organizations that have uh, come to support and, and, and uh, have an open letter to the city would uh, would not be at the table. So Right. And so how confident are you, given that there is a new council that will be looking at this proposal when it comes back to them? You've put forward this letter of support with the other agencies. How confident are you that this time this will go ahead? Well, I hope uh, it, now this only goes to the development uh, permit board. It doesn't actually go to city council for uh, like the last time. But, I, you know, I, I hope that uh, the, the development uh, permit board realizes this, that, you know, this letter and I'm I'm. I'm honored to stand shoulder to shoulder with these uh, organizations that are 100 years old. That you know they're in support of the project and they uh, they, they wanted to see it happen. All right, Jordan. Thanks so much for taking the time and chatting today. Appreciate it. Thank thank you for having me on again, Joe.